Well, welcome back to Landon Live. I'm very excited for this episode. So am I! Ain't that right, Kip? Kip? Where'd Kip go, Jackie? Look! <laughs> I am very excited uh, for this. You know, this was when we first started the Landon Live series. So this was one of the first interviews. And we've uh, we've just been turning them into a podcast for our podcast listeners to enjoy. And this one was with Dan Horn. Growing up in the vent community, uh, the ventriloquist community, you have people that you look up to. Of course, you've got Jeff Dunham and Terry Fader and, and, and you know, the, the vents that are household names. But you also have people that are uh, working vents that are known for specific things that they, that makes them unique. You know, Dan Horn is no exception to that. He is the master manipulator. He manipulates puppets amazingly, and he's hilarious with his physical comedy and his characters. And I've always looked up to Dan in that regard as a puppeteer, as a performer, as a ventriloquist, and it was so amazing to get to meet him for the first time at the annual Vent Haven Ventriloquist Convention. And then, of course, when I asked him to be on the show, he said he'd love to. And so, here's my interview. With master manipulator and stand-up ventriloquist Dan Horn. Welcome to Landon Live. My name is Landon Harvey, and today I have Matt, the the master manipulator Dan Horn on. He's known as the master manipulator within the Vic community for his Vic. puppet manipulation skills. Dan, how are you doing today? Oh. I am frustrated because uh, this technology is supposed to be making our lives better, and it's not. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely uh, created a, a little issue for us there. Um, we have some people joining in. Uh, Mike Palmer says, hi, guys. Uh, Ann Seaton says hello from Texas. Hi, Ann Seaton. I'm also in Texas. Uh, Dale Brown said hi, and Cannon Neal also said hello. Um, so uh, in, in kind of going into this interview, uh, Dan, how did you get started? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, your mic is off right now. If I go to live comments, can I see what people are chatting? Uh, yep, yep, yeah, yeah. Oh. you can hit. Uh, okay. All right, yep. I see it. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no more problems. Yeah. Well, there, there's a learning curve to everything. And we, sometimes the technology is just, it has to be rebooted and you have to, you know, throw it across the room a little few times, think, and then it. I think starts. it needs to be booted right out the window. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and talking about your career, because um, you've always been a big inspiration and an idol to me in, in the event community. How did you get started in ventriloquism? Uh, I was a I was a kid at an amusement park that we had here in Phoenix. I live in the Phoenix area, and. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I think it opened in maybe 62, uh, this amusement park called Legend City uh, opened up, and we were there in 64 one time, and Vonda K. Van Dyke, who was Miss Arizona at the time, was performing in a theater there at this amusement park. Vonda K. Van Dyke uh, did ventriloquism with a puppet she called Curly Q, which was a martial figure. 
And I loved puppets. And when I saw that puppet, I just went ballistic. It was the coolest puppet I'd ever seen in my life. And after that, I thought, hey, if I become a ventriloquist, then I'll have cool looking puppets. So that's how it started. As I, I saw her for my birthday, I think it was my sixth birthday in 65. Um, Von de Kay, of course, won Miss America in 1965. Uh, she was Miss Arizona first, then Miss America. And my birthday's in December, so uh, I was given uh, Jimmy Nelson's instant ventriloquism record and a little oh. puppet that I was told was Danny O'Day, but I found out years later it was actually a Jerry Mahoney, but I always called it Danny O'Day. Mm -hmm. And I taught myself based on Jimmy's record. Wow. Which I still have. And... I did it just as a hobby for years, and sure. uh, I was in high school. I mowed lawns during the summer when I was a fresh, a sophomore and a junior. Um, in Arizona, it's pretty hot. Well, I was mowing a lawn that the backyard butted up to the play yard of a preschool. Okay. And the of course it was so hot the kids were inside and I thought I should be doing something where I'm inside. So when I finished the lawn, cutting the lawn, I walked over to the preschool and I said, "Hey, I do puppet shows. <laughs> How about uh, hiring me to come and put on a show for the kids?" And they said, "Well, what do you charge?" And so I charged the same thing that I charged for cutting a lawn. Uh, and that was $2.25. Wow. <laughs> so I did an hour puppet show for $2.25. And it worked out that I did it at this one place. It was called um, All Seasons Daycare. Okay. Uh, Monday and Thursday or Monday and Wednesday, and then I found another day uh, daycare center, and they picked me up for Tuesday and Thursday. So uh, four days a week, I was doing an hour-long puppet show uh, at these daycare centers um, for $2.25 per show. <laughs> How old were you during that? Were you like in your teens? Were you younger than that? Or? I was like 13. Okay. So this would have been, uh, if it was my sophomore year, I was like 13 or 14. Okay. Wow. These so when did, when did these you get into the Wallace and Ladmo show? Okay. Uh, I, later on in uh, 1979, uh, I auditioned for, to be part of a, well, I was, let me back up a little bit. Sure. Um, I was attending Mesa Community College in the music department. Uh, I was uh, studying theory and composition and singing, voice, that kind of stuff. And I was in a class that emphasized solo singing. And we had to uh, sing a song every Friday, a solo. And 
I got the idea because I still did the ventriloquism on my own as a hobby. Uh, I got the idea that one day I would uh, sing a duet as my solo. So I took a puppet in and I sang the song High Hopes uh, as a duet with a puppet. Well, everybody loved it and everybody started inviting me to parties. Oh, and bring your puppet. And uh, so eventually I did some talent shows at the college uh, and a friend of mine happened to notice in the paper uh, auditions were being held for a summer festival and they were looking for all kinds of acts. And I didn't have an act, but I went and auditioned anyway. And after my audition, they walked up to me and they said, not only do we want to use you for our summer festival, but we would like you to do our television commercial uh, advertising the event. So that was my first television work was, and wow. I don't have a copy of it. I have no idea if it even still exists. I, mm -hmm. I didn't have a VCR or anything then. Uh, this was 79. And the lady who was working on that festival project uh, got a job working for the city of Phoenix in uh, an office called Traffic Safety Coordination, uh, which was an office that uh, focused on education of the public on traffic safety. So they got the idea for me to do a safety show in the elementary schools. And so I put together a show and I went around to elementary schools and I did a half hour show five days a week, two in the morning, two in the afternoon, five days a week. Well, and was this in your teenage years or was that later on? Uh, this was 79. So I was 20. Okay. Wow. And uh, so as part of the promotion of my uh, safety show at the schools, we mm -hmm. had this television show on in the Phoenix area called the Wallace and Ladmo show, which was kind of like a Saturday night live for kids. Oh, nice. And I started making appearances on there uh, to promote uh, the, the contract I worked under was safety belts. Uh, the, the focus was supposed to be on safety belts. So educating about wearing safety belts. So I, uh, I went to the show, did a few appearances uh, on that, and I was asked to come on regularly. Uh, and after about a year of doing regular guest spots, the guy who produced the show and was the star of the show asked me to become a cast member. And so I, uh, which was fine because the contract for this, doing the safety shows was, mm -hmm. was starting to come to an end. And so for eight years, I spent five days a week doing a, a TV show, uh, a local kids TV show where every day I did a two or three minute routine uh, some of them were, I've got a, quite a few of them recorded and they're really painful to watch now. <laughs> what, uh, what, 
topic did you start with? Because I know that you you built some of the Orsons and that, but I, I'm assuming that's why I was later on. I or, I did I used Orson. My my oh. first uh, of the soft sculpture puppets that I used. My first one was Cassandra, which was a a cheeky girl puppet, red haired oh. cheeky girl puppet. And Orson was then my second character. I created him when I was 19. That's why Orson is 91. I just turned my age around. And uh, so at the time that I started making the appearances on the Wallace and Ladmo show, it was about 1980, and it was in October of 1981 uh, that Wallace, Mm -hmm. Bill Thompson, asked me to do to be a cast member on the show. And I wasn't just a cast member. I also wrote for the show. Uh, I did artwork for the show. I wrote music for the show. Uh, We were all, everybody that worked on the show was pretty much a jack of all trades. We, we all pretty much did uh, other things other than just appear before the camera. Sure. And, uh, and so that's how that got started and doing you know, a television spot five days a week for eight years, uh, you you get a little bit of practice and you have the opportunity to then see the playback. And every day I would watch it and assess what I saw. And when I saw things that I didn't like, I would try to change them. And so anyway, that's where, uh, that's where I'd say Orson was the one that was, started to become everybody's favorite. So mm-hmm. he, he appeared most often. And uh, what so was the idea were, behind Orson? He was created just for my own amusement. Uh, I had some elderly relatives that, uh, there were three elderly relatives that had some quirky things Mm-hmm. that I knew that if I had my puppet do them, my immediate family would recognize who I was doing and find it funny. Mm-hmm. And so I made this puppet and, you know, brought him out around the house and had him doing things and saying things like uh, these three elderly relatives. And, so for the longest time, when I started doing the open mic nights at the comedy clubs and and various restaurants and any place that had an open mic, I didn't do Orson. I only did Cassandra because I, I thought nobody's going to find it funny because they're not going to know the people that I'm making fun of. Right. And I, after a few months of just doing Cassandra, I got a little bored and I thought, well, why don't I just do something with Orson and just see what happens? And it was like day and night, the difference in the response from Cassandra to Orson. And that's when I realized that people don't need to know who you're basing uh, a character on. If the character is strong, that's that's all they respond to. Wow. So you use Orson right after you use Cassandra and did you notice a shift in the way the audience perceived that difference in the in the character that you brought out because one's old one's younger they're probably the energy levels of the characters are probably different too well we only get got like 6 minutes 
okay to go up on stage so i didn't do them both in you know i did it one night and then a week later i came back and i i brought orson out and it, it i could tell that it was uh there was quite a big big difference in the response and nobody that i could think of at the time was doing an old person puppet uh i had seen um dick weston and he had aunt martha who was a elderly lady and then there was uh uh edgar bergen had effie clinker who again was an elderly lady but i did i couldn't think of any old man puppets so originally orson started out being a dirty old man and uh and i'm just really appalled when i see some of the videos that are on youtube now because the material is stuff that i'm really embarrassed by now it's a lot raunchier mm -hmm. than anything i would do now but that's what was getting laughs then and sure. and uh so o over the years of performing i was able to refine uh that material a little bit and try to make it a little more palatable and not just so raunchy well, that's that's interesting that brings me to my next question um how did your writing style evolve through this through time and through working with orson and the clubs and cassandra well like i said when you did the open mic sessions you only got six minutes and mm -hmm. so i would try you know week after week when and of course there was an open mic somewhere almost every night of the week so you could go out and work out almost every single night and i did it's not like now where i i can't even think if anybody has that i've heard of that has an open mic session anymore there might be a few comedy clubs that still do it but back then you could do it every night so if you tried something one night that didn't work the next night you'd change it a little bit or you'd add something to it or you'd cut something out and it was it's like a ball of string and you just kept winding and winding and winding and honing it you know making it bigger and better uh a little bit at a time so how would you define your comedy style as a ventriloquist i don't know if i had any style <laughs> i did things that made me laugh i mean is it like you know set up punch is it situational is it uh it's has it always kind of been one thing or i my material is usually very character driven it's okay. not there are some setup punchline setup punchline but it's not just that and it, there are some story elements to my material and i try to do i try to keep it funny but i try to do a little bit of theater mm -hmm. as well uh it's not just you know joke after joke uh i try to create uh, a show a play if you will um it's uh you know it's based on the character's personality uh i don't i didn't do a lot of topical things although once in a while i'd throw in something topical mm -hmm. but um i just did stuff that that I found funny 
And there were lots of times when I was cracking myself up on stage and nobody else was laughing. So. <laughs> well, Mike Palmer has a, has a great question. He says, uh, how much of your act back then is still in your act today? At least 50% of it. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Uh, like I said, I, I've, I worked on honing it. I, I traveled around. Well, of course, the television show was something different all the time. But when I worked at comedy clubs, uh, and especially when I started traveling, I didn't start traveling to out-of-state clubs until about 86. Um, let's see, 86, 87, somewhere around there. Uh, and because I was going to different places, I didn't have to have new material. So I worked on honing an act that would work everywhere I went. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that I thought was good, I kept in. And a joke isn't old when you haven't heard it. Right. And so I would travel to a new audience and they hadn't heard it. So it would work again. That doesn't work if you're performing for the same people all the time. But right. I got into working the college market and the cruise ships and uh, it was a brand new audience every time. And when these people are hiring you, they're expecting you to deliver, you know, for their audience. So you can't really take a risk with a lot of new, fresh, if it's fresh, uh, untried material. You can maybe sneak in a few lines here and there, but you've got to fall back on the material that that you know is going to work. And uh, so it, uh, it, it, my show started out with a little nucleus. And then, like I said, like that ball of string, I've just kept winding things around it. But you can watch videos of me back in the 80s, and I'm still saying some of the same jokes line for line, word for word, because they worked. So, as, was it difficult? Because I know, you know, some people will say when I have the puppet on my hand, it kind of does a thing of its own. So was it kind of difficult? Do you have to reel Orson in when you did the Wallace and Ladmo show versus when you did a comedy club and he was the dirty old man? <laughs> uh, no, they were two completely different venues. And, okay. Uh, of course, when I did the, the kids show, we were scripted most of the time. So sure. we were we were reading teleprompters that had the lines on it. So uh, there were a couple times and, and only a couple times where I wrote something that was maybe slightly suggestive right. and, uh, you know, they would look at it and go, well, we'll have to change this or cut it out or something. Sure. Uh, but because there's such different venues, it, it really wasn't a problem. So. Well, um, I'm curious from a public builder standpoint, uh, you've the evolution of Orson because <laughs> it's it's really it's really neat to see. I believe at well, one of the conventions you had shown the first Orson and then kind of <laughs> the evolution up to the, the current one that you use now. Could you talk about why you changed the look of him and why you stopped at the one that you were that everyone's okay. familiar with using now? Well, the. The puppet that I started out using was not the puppet that I saw in my head. Okay. And that that's just what I was able to make at the time, and my skill was very poor. 
and so I went with it because it's what I had. Uh, but it's not the character that I saw in my head. And then when I started doing the Wallace and Ladmo show, uh, the second Orson I made to look like an improved version of the first Orson so that the character would remain consistent for the TV show. Okay. So, so the first, the second Orson looks like a cleaner b- version of the first Orson. But then when I left the show, which was in 87, uh, then I was free to try to make a new puppet that was closer to the look uh, that I envisioned in my head that Orson looked like. So, and that was with that unibrow. I, I wanted open and closing eyes. I couldn't figure out how to do that. So I just made one brow that went up and down because that's all I could make. But that that created kind of a signature look there. And so the next Orson was then uh, one that Marianne Taylor uh, tried to make for me. And when I got it, I made a few changes to it. Uh, and then I used that for a number of years. But then the Orson that I'm using now, I made in 2000. And he's the closest to what I want Orson to look like. Mm-hmm. I I haven't made any more just because I've, I just, I'm not up to speed on making puppets anymore. And uh, I, I really desperately need to make a new one because it's, it's literally, he's disintegrating. The fabric is all falling apart. And, uh, he's as old as I am. <laughs> I was born in 2000. <laughs> but but he's 91 so <laughs> wow, wow. yeah I guess like that yeah that's, but that's uh, but anyway it uh I really need to make a new one but I'm afraid that I won't be able to get the look the same uh-huh. because I'm not very skilled as a puppet maker sure uh there are many other people yourself included that exceed my skills. That's very nice. So, so I'm I'm reaching a real crossroad here because I've got to do something uh, because uh, the puppet is literally disintegrating. It's getting so old. I have a funny, uh, quick funny story. I had uh, rebuilt a Verna creation that was a uh, baby monkey that was built for Dennis Lee, and he had given me the puppet and I had rebuilt it based off of kind of with my style but based off of the size of it and seeing the because they used the bleach bottle for the base of the body so when it's rebuilt it looks a lot fuller than the initial design so when you have them side by side it looks like it like ate the other one <laughs> to like evolve but uh, it's an interesting thing um uh let's see we have a comment uh do you still have the original Orson and then Dan Clemente said I think he raffled it off a few years ago at Vent Haven uh I do. I have all of my Orsons. Uh-huh. Uh, all that's left of the original Orson is just the head and uh, the the hands. I, I. It was a bad choice then, but I cannibalized things from the first Orson to make the second Orson. Um, the legs, part of the body, and stuff. So the only thing I have is the head and the hands. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the second Orson, because he's the one I used for the most part, uh, for most of the time that I was, well, eight years practically, because only a few months, maybe a year, uh, that I used the first Orson on the show. The second Orson is in a museum uh, here in Arizona. The Arizona uh, Historical Society Museum has a whole exhibit dedicated to this show. Uh, the Wallace and Ladmo show ran for 35 years, and it holds the distinction of being the longest-running daily television show with the original cast. Uh, that's the key, because there have been other shows like Meet the Press and stuff that have been on longer, but they changed hosts over the years. And Bill Thompson, who was Wallace, was on, started the show and was on every single episode of the show except for one. Uh, he, he missed one taping uh, for a funeral, I believe. Uh, but so it, it actually, uh, the show won several Emmys. I forget how many, six or seven uh, regional Emmys. And uh, it, for now, holds the record for almost 36 years it ran uh, for being the longest running television show in history uh, with the original cast. That's phenomenal. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. So there's a museum that here in Arizona that um, has a, an exhibit, and that's where Orson number two is. Orson number three I used for years, and I really liked his look. Uh, but again, he got to where he was falling apart, kind of disintegrating. Sure. And I took him to a dry cleaner. <laughs> And I asked their opinion. I said, do you think this could be dry cleaned? And, oh, yes, of course. And that destroyed it. <laughs> when I got it back, they, they kind of went, it didn't work. <laughs> and anyway, I still have that. Um, Orson number four was the one that Marianne Taylor uh, made. And when I got it back, I actually, uh, it, it had a few things that I were not quite the way I wanted them. So I made some alterations to that. Uh, and I used it for a long time there. I had Verna Finley try to make a head for me one time. Uh, it did not work out at all. Verna's brilliant, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't uh, quite what I wanted. And when I tried to take it apart and fix it, uh, it, I had taken it apart to the, point that I couldn't put it back together again. So that one's gone. I, I never used that one. Uh, I don't know what I did with it. Uh, but then the Marianne Taylor one was replaced in 2000 with the Orson I'm using now, which has been the same Orson for 20 years. So that's phenomenal. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, uh, when you decided to add rod manipulation into your puppetry and your ventriloquism and what inspired that? Okay. Um, I've done that from the very beginning. Um, I, prior to 76, let me think what year this was about 76, 76 or 77. Uh, I used hard figures. I had a Craig Lovick figure and, uh, a, um, uh, a Pelham, 
mm-hmm. figure, you know. Right. Uh, and I had a, a friend, a German lady, uh, who was uh, belonged to the Phoenix Puppetry Guild. And she told me that they were going to do a workshop one day on how to make soft sculpture Muppet-style puppets, because it was 76 and the Muppets were all the rage. So I went to this workshop with her, and at the end of the day, walked out with a Muppet-style puppet that was the head and the body and the arms. And we put wooden dowels on the arms to work the hands the same way the Muppets did. Sure. Well, when I got home, uh, it the puppet just had two eyes stuck on it, and uh, I wanted to turn it into a character that I could use since I did ventriloquism more than just puppetry. And uh, my mother had a fall uh, that she let me have, one that she didn't use, uh, and so I put hair on it, and then I added... Uh, They weren't even really legs. It was a pair of little pants that I just stuffed (laughs) and sewed shoes onto the bottom of the pants. And I added legs to her. And that was that was the very first Cassandra. Wow. uh, Which was my first real character that really connected with audiences. And. but the rods were there because we put them on in that workshop. So I just picked them up and I just started using them and immediately found that it brought so much more to the illusion than just, like I said, before I was using just the, the, the Craig Lovick figure, which is the traditional wooden type figure. And all of a sudden, because she had that long hair, uh, I would take her hand and I would have her flip the hair back. And it just doing that would get a laugh. And uh, and so I just, from then on, almost all of the puppets I made, I used rods for. Uh, it, it just added so much more to the illusion. And it's all because uh, this friend of mine, uh, this German lady, her name was Ingrid, uh, invited me to go to this workshop one day. I think I follow so, Ingrid on uh, Facebook. What's that? I think I follow Ingrid on Facebook. I I don't know. She passed away quite a few years ago. Oh, never and, mind. Must be a different Ingrid, but they're both uh, related to puppetry, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, um, she she moved back to Germany about nineteen. 78 and oh. she passed away i think about five or six years ago so well um where where would you say you primarily work where did i primarily work well i was hired by the city of phoenix to do this traffic safety show sure uh and i went around for five years doing shows on traffic safety in the elementary schools at the same time I was doing the Wallace and Ladmo show uh, that when that came to an end, I started doing comedy clubs. Uh, and in the early nineties, uh, I got on some of the 
TV shows, uh, evening at the improv and uh, comic strip live and that kind of stuff, uh, which gave me some national exposure. And so I got into working the college market. And then I did the college market for, uh, gosh, for almost 15 years, traveling the whole country. Uh, and in bet between that, I also started working on some cruise ships. I did my first cruise in 1989 on the, on the previous uh, Holland America ship called the Westerdam. Uh, there's a, there's a Westerdam now, but it's a, it's a new ship. Uh, the one that I was on was a much smaller one. And, uh, so I did cruise ships and it, and among all that, I was doing some, uh, corporate jobs. I, I got picked up by the Phoenix Speakers Bureau and they booked some shows for me and just wherever I could land a job i went so i did uh everything did you find it difficult uh going into the college market did you have to adjust any of your material or was it just pretty much they they got it uh i i was i i worked went over very well with the college crowd okay uh there was um my sense of humor seemed to tune in very well with uh, the college crowd. I, I've been, I was nominated a couple times for, uh, entertainer of the year. Oh, wow. Uh, didn't get that one, but I did get, uh, one year, uh, comedy variety entertainer of the year. Okay. Um, uh, and then while I was doing colleges, there was another guy that, uh, started doing colleges a little bit after me, uh, sure. somebody named Jeff Dunham. And, uh, Every every time I went to a college, they would say, "Hey, have you seen this guy Jeff Dunham? Uh, he does what you do. <laughs> really, he does puppets. Yeah, he does ventriloquism." And then, so Jeff and I were actually doing the the college market about the same time. I continued doing colleges, and he went on to superstardom. But uh, but yeah, we were both doing the college market around the same time, and uh, I. I connected very well with the college market. Uh, the thing that was a little bit, uh, the thing was a little bit um, dismaying about working the colleges is sometimes you're dealing with kids that don't have a clue what the real world is all about. And I would have, it would be arranged in the contract that when I finished the performance, my check was to be given to me. Sure. And then they, you know, I would do the show and they'd come up and go, oh, the check got locked into the director's office and she's not here and we don't have the key until Monday. So we can't give you your check. And, and I'm going, okay, uh, well, Monday, you can overnight it to me at this address. Well, six weeks later, I might be calling back going, I don't have my check and they're going, Oh, well, because we couldn't find it. We had to cut a new one. And, and in the meantime, I had a mortgage to pay. I had kids that had braces that I had to pay for. I had, you know, clothes and food and, you know, I have my bills 
that need to get paid. And they didn't realize that this wasn't something I was just out doing for the fun of it. Uh, It was kind of important to be getting my check on time so that I could pay my bills. And uh, anyway, uh, that kind of stuff went on all the time, all the time, because these kids were given a certain amount of responsibility and some of them handled it very well. And some of them didn't think it was all that important that they do what they were supposed to do. Sure. So um, after, a, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years of that, I just got really tired of the college market. In 2003, I did my last college show and started focusing my attention more on working the cruise ships. So, well, we've got a great question from Mike Palmer. He said, uh, "Did Dan work with any up-and-coming comics that are now famous?" Oh, everybody. <laughs> David Spade uh, was an old friend of mine, and he actually worked as my opening act a few times. Wow! Uh, and uh, so he went to be on to be quite big. Um, oh, uh, over the years, I worked with. A, a huge number of people that went on to to be famous or have a much more high profile career than I had, but um, uh, yeah, there were there were lots of people. I'm uh, Mark Curry. Um, oh, trying to think of all these names. A lot of people had uh, got into working in uh, sitcoms that. Uh, were maybe only one or two seasons and you know that was that uh i'm i there was one guy a juggler that i used to work with he ended up uh i'm trying to think of his name he ended up host being a game show host uh and i can't even think of the name of the game show but uh but yeah i got to work with rich jenny and uh uh he Rich Richard Jenny, I worked with him maybe four times, and he never remembered me from the next time. You know, I'd work with him. I watched every performance he did. The man was absolutely brilliant. Uh, but then the next time I would work with him, I'd say, hey, how you doing? I'm good. Who are you? <laughs> he would never remember that we had worked together. But so I, I really made a good impression on him. Uh, I opened for Jay Leno one time, and Jay is not a big fan of variety acts. Right. And uh, actually what happened was I was headlining the week at the club. It was the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, and I got word that Jay wanted to come in uh, on like Friday and Saturday night and work on material for the show, which he did on a regular basis. So I got bumped down to being his opening act and then he closed the show. And so I did my, uh, I did my set. And as we're passing backstage, I'm coming off stage and he's about to go on about to be introduced by the MC. All he said to me was, uh, okay, it, it, can I say what he actually said, or do I have to clean it up? He he just looked at me and went, hey, that puppet shit's cute. <laughs> oh, 
that's all he had to say about it. Hey, that puppet shit's cute. <laughs> so, um, I'm curious. So, did you did that get to you? I mean, did you have do you ever have other comics that would you know think think less of you because you were a ventriloquist act? Did it get? I, I didn't have comics think less of me. I had people that booked the shows. Really. Uh, there was uh, there was a comedy club that I was trying to get booked at in Kansas City, and the guy told me on the phone, uh, "Well, you're a ventriloquist, and we just don't book acts like that." Wow! And so the following week, after I had that conversation with him, I was working at um, the Last Laugh in Newport Beach, uh, a comedy club. And the New York, a reporter from the New York Times happened to be there. I was working as the middle act, but I got a standing ovation. So in front of the headliner, which you don't really, one, it doesn't happen very often. And two, it's bad form to do better than the headliner. Anyway, he wrote about it in the New York Times. And so I cut out the clipping and I sent it to the guy who told me that I wouldn't be right for his act, uh, for his club. Um, I used to work at, uh, for years, Bally's had Catch a Rising Star. Bally's in Vegas had Catch a Rising Star. And I used to uh, work that club on a regular basis. And uh, there was one wall in the club that was reserved only for acts who'd gotten standing ovations in the in the club and my picture was on it and the lady that was booking that club left and a new person came in Mm -hmm. and when i called to try to get a booking i was told that i would never work there again because i'm a ventriloquist and i said but my picture's on the wall uh for people who've gotten standing ovations and she said, well, if you want to work here again, you have to do something else. And I never worked there again. So, Was it just that you're a ventriloquist or were they worried that because you're a ventriloquist, it opens them up to all these other variety acts? I, you'd have to ask them. All I was told is uh, we don't like what you do and you, you're not any good. Wow. It's basically the 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 the. the, the message that I got was that because I'm a ventriloquist, I must not be any good. Therefore, we're not going to book you. Wow. And and that was the prevailing message from a lot of people. And uh, so that, that I felt was a little bit frustrating. Uh, you know, just like everybody else, somebody, what a person does, they need to be judged on what what they've done, what they do, not just categorized and um, um, what's the word? Um, Typecast, you know, that everybody does the same thing. So not every stand-up comic tells the same kinds of jokes or does it the same way. Well, not every ventriloquist does the same thing either. And judge me, if you wanted to say to me, I saw your show and I didn't care for it. I could deal with that. But if you're not even going to 
watch me or give me a chance and you're only going to cut me off because I'm a ventriloquist, then I have an issue with that. Christy Lynn said that was their loss big time. I... <laughs> well, thank you. But it was my loss, too, because I had a lot of dry spells where I wasn't getting any work. So because people wouldn't book me for that reason. Well, on a, on a curious note, um, you have Cassandra in your show. Is she still in your show, that character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she's her... the closing act for my second show. And you put her together or she falls apart on stage? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Was was that inspired by the initial Muppet design, where you were kind of throwing? Now that, that just came that came about because I was doing a show, mm-hmm. and I f- pulled the puppet back, and that wig flew off, and she just had a bald head, and it got such a huge laugh that then I decided, uh oh, there's that's there's something there. And I started trying to incorporate that and make it happen on purpose. And then I thought, well, if if that gets a laugh, then maybe having more stuff fall off would get a laugh. So I had it where her arms fell off and her legs fell off and the eyes fell off. And so and after a few times of doing that, then it was too much. It started to look like it was all planned. Right. So I just did a I pulled back then and did just a couple things. The the hair falls off and then the eyes. And then I play with moving the eyes around and doing stuff with the eyes. And then people are left with, was that planned or did that just happen? And, uh, and, and I, I love it when people come up to me and it was an accident that got a laugh. So I planned it. Uh, But because I didn't overdo it, then people weren't sure. Did that just happen on accident? So people would come up to me and ask, did you plan for the hair and the eyes to fall off or was that an accident? And I don't want to lie to people, but I don't want them to I don't want them to lose that bit of fun that they experienced thinking that they saw something just for them. So I would ask them, I would ask them, was it funny? And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, then I planned it. And then they think I'm just putting on and then they think they oh we just saw something that nobody else got to see until they come and see me again and it happens again and then they go wait a minute (laughs) so so how do you keep how do you keep the energy every performance because that that's a great example of staying in the moment on stage and i mean do you um, that's just something as i get older i now do like a they ha- there's this powder that you can take before you do a workout and it okay. just kind of gets you pumped up a little bit. I do a little bit of that before a show now because my energy just flags all the time now. But, uh, but back in the day, um, the energy was just there. I was having fun. Uh, it's acting. You just, you yeah. act the part you do. What's uh, I, I was at a I was headed to a college uh show one time and we had a stop in um Cincinnati and I ate a hot dog in between flights and on the plane on the second plane to where I was going which was uh K- 
Connecticut or somewhere. This hot dog apparently was not good. And I started getting really sick. And by the time that plane landed, I was just heaving my guts out. And I went to the show, to the college, did the show. And when when you work colleges, a lot of times they ask you to go out to dinner after the show. All the kids that worked on bringing you to the venue uh, want to take you out for uh, pizza, usually. And uh, so I'm packing up and the guy came over and says, hey, we'd love to go get pizza with you. And I turned to him and I said, I would love to do that too, but I am so sick. I need to just go back to my hotel and die. And he goes, you're sick. (laughs) I said, I ate a bad hot dog on the plane, you know, in between planes. And I just am about to die right now. And he goes, well, we never knew. It certainly didn't come off in the show. You, you, you do what you got to do. I, uh, I was working at a comedy club one time. Same thing happened. I ate some clam chowder for lunch at a restaurant. And by showtime, I was on stage about to toss my cookies. Yeah. And uh, I, <laughs> I finished the show. Uh, there was a door backstage that led out to the alley. And I said, good night. I took a bow. I walked off stage, pushed that door open everywhere. So I didn't, I wasn't there to do my uh, curtain call back (laughs) to the show. But but anyway, but it, you just, you do what you got to do. You know, it's, I don't, I don't know how else to, you, you sum it up from somewhere. Uh, there have been times when I felt terrible before the show, have a headache, something, shoulder hurts, elbow, arm, whatever. And the minute you get on stage, all of that's gone. Uh, do the show, you get off stage and you just, then you die. <laughs> and then you realize, oh gosh, I got to do it one more time. <laughs> I got to do a second show. What is on it with these great questions tonight? He said, have you ever lost Orson or uh, had the airport misplaced Orson while traveling? I have had my things delayed sometimes, Mm -hmm. but they've never lost Orson. There was one bag uh, one time that got lost that had a, a different puppet in it. Orson's little ventriloquist puppet uh was in it uh that bag was never recovered so i had to uh had to replace that puppet but uh there have been times coming home when the bags didn't make it with me coming home uh yeah there there have been there was only one time when it affected a show uh one of my bags didn't show up, so half of the show wasn't there. And I explained to the people that I was really sorry I could still do a show, and I did. But then afterwards, they only sent me half the money because they said, well, you only did half your show. It doesn't matter. I still did the show. Uh, that that was really not fair. But 
you know, sometimes you don't have any recourse to, for that kind of stuff. I wasn't going to sue for, you know, whatever small amount it was to begin with, but that was, that was pretty, uh, I mean, it wasn't my fault and they still got their show and everybody loved it, but because they knew that I had only done half of what I planned to do, they felt like we should, they should only pay half of the money. And I didn't think that was right, but it would have taken too much time to try to pursue getting the other half. So I just let it go. Good note, you probably left them wanting more. What? I said on a on a positive note, you probably left your audience with wanting more. I know I still did the full show. I just oh, did it right. with what I had. Wow. Yeah, they weren't slighted at all. Yeah. It's just the person that booked me knew I was missing a uh, suitcase and felt they felt like somehow they didn't get what they should have gotten. So I'm curious, do you have a lineup of characters that have been in your show for since you you've begun and then you have certain characters that you might that might be kind of like background characters that you'll throw in and, and try out? And and if you do, what's your what's your process? Why what attracts you to the puppet to add it to your show or what what ideas do you have to have something like that created? I I use pretty much the same characters. I don't have a whole lot of characters because um, number one, I most of what I think up can be covered by certain characters that I already have. Sure. Uh, and if I create another character and somebody watches it and says, "Oh well." that's just the same character as Orson just with a different puppet. I don't want that kind of comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, I have, I have seen, well, I hate to name names, but there was a, was a puppeteer that I saw one time that ha had a main character. Then he brought out uh, a secondary character. And even though the puppet looked completely different, it was basically the first character in a different puppet. And so unless I can have a character that's going to be completely unique, uh, I don't want to have a bunch of lukewarm characters. I want to have a few strong ones. And like I said, nearly everything that I think up, I already have a character for something uh, that one of those characters could do. Sure. Ventriloquist um, character, in your opinion. What's that? What makes a good ventriloquist character, in your opinion? Oh, um, it could be anything. There, okay. there are no limits to what makes a good ventriloquist character. Something that's interesting to watch, something that perpetuates the material, something that makes sense with the material. Um, I've seen lots of characters uh, that I've liked. Uh, but I haven't necessarily, you know, like at the convention, I've seen characters that I've liked, but I haven't added them to my cast of characters because even though it's a great puppet, maybe it it may not be uh, something I can come up with something to do with it. Uh, I I bought a puppet, excuse me, I bought a, a Selberg puppet one time that I just loved the puppet, but 
I could not find anything to do with that puppet. And uh, so that's the only puppet that I ended up selling to somebody else uh, because I, it was a great puppet, but I just could not come up with anything to do with it. And if it, if you're not going to be able to use it, what's the point? So, so that's why, and and then I've got characters that I, I consider my, um, their um, supporting cast. Uh, They might come in for just one or two jokes or a bit, or they serve some purpose, but they're not necessarily a standalone character. Uh, there's a few of those in my show and those can be fun, but, but if as a main character, if you're not going to be able to do at least a eight or 10 minute routine, at least with a character, then and, and you don't have a use for it as just a supporting cast member, uh, then what's the, what's the point of, of adding it in? And if it's not going to be completely unique, to the other characters that you have, uh, again, there's there's not a lot of reason for it, for me to add other characters. I've got a few puppets that I bought just because they were cute puppets, uh, but never have used them just because I don't have any material for them. I'm I'm sorry, I don't mean to these these comments. There's not, there's a war in the comment section right now. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. So for the uh, for the post that I did about this about this live, I had uh, I had a picture of you with Orson, and I believe it was uh, polyester. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Could so, you talk about her and how she? Do you still Paul, in the act? Polyester uh, started out as a joke, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a joke in a routine that I used to do with Orson, which was just a terrible routine uh but then i got the idea it was all puns the routine was all puns uh-huh and orson talked about having dated a lady named polly esther uh which is her name and mm-hmm. that it was all puns and but then i got to thinking well i might be able to do something if i actually made a polly esther and put come up with a routine for it and i still i still have that do that routine uh polly is uh orson's former girlfriend and leading lady and uh uh i've i've used her on occasion as a solo character especially when i did the tv show uh back in the 80s she's i've i tried to a couple of times to do use her by herself but she wasn't quite strong enough by herself, but she worked well with Orson. And uh, I think that picture, is that the one that you were promoting this session with? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I had tried a different hair on Orson. Uh-huh. That's not his usual hair. I was and wondering, because I was like, is there one that looks exactly? And it was when I was pulling that photo that I realized the difference. That was actually... Um, Ram's wool. Uh, <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and I thought maybe that would look good, but it didn't. And that only lasted a very short time. And I've replaced it again with the feather boa. 
that is his hair now, but uh the thing I love about the bow is it it, it adds to the age and it's got a a great movement to it too on its own. Yeah, I I agree. I I'm not being able what's going on over in the comments section. <laughs> I'm not able to Alma and Dan Clemente about uh, how many questions you can ask. We have got a great question from Michael Paul. He asks, he says, ask Dan how guilty he feels about making me a puppet he kept for himself. <laughs> I feel terrible. Uh, Michael Paul, or as I know him as Ziggy, uh, we worked together in a show. He was on the tech crew doing the lighting and uh, I was part of the cast. This show was in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. It was a Vegas-style show. And I made a puppet for uh, a friend of ours, a, a guy we made friends with. He was the singer in the bar. Mm -hmm. And I made a puppet for him. And Michael asked me... Uh, What's that? We used to let the control Orson during dance battles. Uh, anyway, uh, he asked me to make a chicken puppet for him, which I did, a completely handmade chicken puppet. And it, I knew I would never be able to replicate it. And I just loved the way it looked. And so I... Pop it profusely apologized to him, but I didn't give it to him. And I made him another puppet that was a, a little more generic looking. <laughs> and I feel terrible about it. But, uh, you know, uh, Michael, if you're still, if you're watching this or listening, I still have that puppet. It's still in my show. It's disintegrating. It needs to be replaced. I actually thought, Landon, about using your chicken uh, to replace him, but your chicken is a completely different character. Works completely different, yeah. And, uh, but, uh, what was that? I was 19 and he sat me down so sad, hang hand-wringing. <laughs> I, yes, I was, uh, I felt terrible, but it did not go to waste. He got used a lot and is still in my show now. Wow. So what is, what is the character's name? Well, I called him Stu the Chicken. Uh, the, the puppet that Michael Paul uh, eventually ended up with was a generic, more of a generic bird character, mm -hmm. which he called Willie Swallow. <laughs> And uh, I think I, he had a new one made. He had a, a very professional-looking figure made, and uh, but still based on the look of the one that I originally created for him. So, and I think there's a picture of him up in on the wall in uh, uh, Vent Haven with the original puppet that I made for him. Oh wow! Yeah, I've, I've seen the puppet. It's got some similarities. But, but the but the routine that he did with Willie was brilliant mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have worked as well if if he had had a chicken puppet so, so it it all worked <laughs> but, so he should be thanking you 
Well, <laughs> I it was still pretty wrong of me to build a puppet for somebody and then not give it to him. But well, if it makes Michael feel any better, um, years after that incident, I would be taking a uh, a private uh, lesson on uh, puppet performance and comedy with Dan Horn uh, with a little chicken puppet that I built, and uh, and he had bought that from me. So he's <laughs> not against. It's not just you. It's okay. Um, <laughs> no. But whereas you have the ability to make more puppets that look <laughs> like the one that I bought from you, I didn't yeah. have the skill to replicate that look. And I, I just kept looking at it going, I I love this puppet. And I, I know I'll never be able to get this look again. And I just couldn't. It was like parting with one of my children. I just couldn't do it. With and the that's chicken. why. What? With the chicken I built? No, the the one that was supposed to go to Michael Paul. Oh, okay, yeah. I but the chicken you built, uh, I still haven't done anything with it. But I love that character. But I knew with the skill that you have that you would be able to replicate that puppet. Yeah. And so I didn't feel too bad about buying that one from you, because <laughs> I knew you could make another one. Right. And you and you have you've made several. <laughs> yeah, and, but the yeah, that's that's a that's a whole other story because I thought it yeah, it's the whole fall apart thing and it'll be funny and I've I've worked on so many different versions of that and just could not get it to to gel right. Um, so in in kind of in kind of wrapping up our interview here, what do you hope to see from the future of ventriloquism or from future events? Can Can I address one thing that Mike Palma sure. said here first? Sure, go ahead. He says uh, that <laughs> I I need Dan Clementi's Jed character because he knows that uh, uh, Clementi isn't using it. I I have written so much material for Jed and I've sent it over to Dan, <laughs> and I actually <laughs> called Dan up one time and I said, Dan, why don't you sell Jed to me because I think I can do something with this character and. <laughs> And Dan was like, no, not my Jed. I can't give him up. If he sells Jed to you, what is he going to do at Van Haven Open Mic Nights? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was probably wrong of me to make the offer, but uh, but I just felt like Jed was such a strong character. And uh, I would really like to see Dan do something with him. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and... Uh, But uh, I um, I tried to get Dan to to sell Jed to me, but he wouldn't do it. So anyway, you were asking me a question about the future yeah, of ventriloquism. What, yeah, what do you hope to see from the future of ventriloquism or from future of ventriloquists? I would like to just see it continue on as a as an enjoyable uh, art, as a as an enjoyable. Okay. A faction of entertainment. Uh, so many mm -hmm. people, I think, have a negative view of ventriloquism uh, because it is very difficult to do. And unless you've got somebody that does it well uh, or or does something with it that entertains, people uh, are, aren't going to respond to it. Uh, but I would love to to see it 
to see people do new and uh, novel things with ventriloquism, do it well, and keep ventriloquism as one of the entertainment arts. I, I would hate to see it dry up and disappear. But of course, with uh, with Jeff and Terry Fader and uh, Ron Lucas and you know a lot of guy really good guys out there, uh, Paul Zerdin, uh, Darcy Lynn, uh, in, out there inspiring a whole uh, new uh, generation of youngsters. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I think people are going to continue to uh, to to try to find ways of making it entertaining. That's great. Well, Dan Horn, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. I know we've we've all lost some time now, but uh, thank you for being on and uh, sharing your story. And and I include you in that list also, Landon. You're you're pretty hotshot yourself, and I think you're probably doing your share of inspiring people to to want to uh, reach heights with ventriloquism. But thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for being on, and thank you guys for tuning in.